We have a lot of children's Bibles in our house. I, I just realized that. Oh, we have a Minecraft Bible too. I didn't throw in there. Oh, man. Um, we are starting a series titled Jesus for Grownups. It could really be called Bible for Grownups in a lot of ways because Jesus, of course, is the culmination. He is the climax of the entire story of Scripture. We'll talk about that in just a second. But if you would like to invite your friends to join you in this journey, the next 12 weeks we're going to be going through the life and teachings of Jesus. We have invitations available to you. They look just like this. Uh, social media, online, emails, all those other ways. Texting people, it's a great ways to invite your friends and family to join you here on Sunday mornings. As we gen as we journey through the uh, the story of Jesus. So, I think this is a really important series. I, I think a lot of people, Christians very much included, have a Bible, a children's Bible version of Jesus in their minds. He's a nice guy. He did some great things. He was a great teacher, maybe a great philosopher even. I'm not entirely sure why he matters. I'm uh, not entirely sure why he uh, had to die, why he had to be born, um, even die the way he did. 41% of people, this is across the board in America, 41% of people believe that Jesus sinned. Is that true? I, I don't, you know, why does that even matter if it's true? If it's not true, why does that matter? So the fact that so many people think that maybe has a misconstrued understanding of who Jesus is and what he accomplished and what he came to accomplish and why all of that matters. So we're excited to tell the story of Jesus. I encourage you to bring your Bibles with you, either in app form or hard copy form, to journey with us as we go through the Gospels over the next several weeks. Also, one reference I want to, I want to encourage, if, if you're a reader, Simply Jesus by N.T. Wright is a great reference for you to understand the context in which he was born, why he matters. Uh, if, you're, if you're a reader, I really, really encourage you to pick up this book and read it um, over the next several weeks as well as you journey with us. And then, of course, I would encourage you to be daily in your own Bibles, you know, reading the New Testament, reading the story of Jesus. Uh, many people started um, reading the Gospels with Annie F. Downs. It's an app um, that, that you'll be reading, podcasts, that you'll be reading uh, the gospel several times throughout the year. And so one way or another, get into the story of Jesus, get into the scriptures, read the story of Jesus. It will change your life. And so today... In our journey through scriptures, we are going to start at the beginning. We're going to start with the birth of Jesus. On July 21st, 2007, Emily and I were um, traveling from the Minneapolis airport to the Boston airport. And the only reason I remember this date is because it was the same date that Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows came out on book form. Now, it was so interesting. It was a phenomenon. How many of you have ever read this book? Okay, a lot of people, okay? Um, it was a phenomenon. If you were around that morning, we got, on, we got to the airport at 6 a.m. There were pallets full of this book in the airport. There were, there were people who were already halfway through the book sitting in coffee shops and in restaurants that had just come out like the night before. And so there, the, the, the world was going crazy over this story. And so I didn't really know what the, all the chaos was about. I had never read the stories myself. And so I got interested, though. I really wanted to understand what, what is this story about? Why is, our, is the world going crazy over the story? And so I, I got my hands on whatever book I could, whatever book was accessible to me. I called up my brother Josh, I believe, actually, because uh, we were going to meet Emily's family at the beach after Boston, and he had book five available. And so I said, sure, I'll start with book five. I don't know. Let's let's give me introduced. You know, let's let's give me introduced to the Harry Potter series. And so I started with book five. But who does that? <laughs> that's craziness. You think? Who does that? That's that's stupidity. Nobody starts with book five of a series of seven. 
You know, you know when the Star Wars saga came out in what 1977, I think Star Wars: A New Hope was was uh, put out in the world. Okay, so people were like super excited about this. A couple years later, Empire Strikes Back comes out, and what do they put at the beginning of Empire Strikes Back? Anybody know? Episode five. They didn't put it in episode four, you know, but they came back when it was released a few years later. They put episode four back, and the world went insane. What do you mean episode five? There is, what's the saga beforehand? Nobody, that requires context. It requires a backstory. Nobody starts at episode five. Nobody starts at episode four. That's just ridiculous. And yet, and yet, how many of you ever began your reading of the Bible with the story of Jesus? You're starting at book five, friends. You're starting at book five because the story of Jesus needs to be understood within the larger context, the larger framework of the entire story of scripture. Now, I'm kind of a hypocrite in this regard because when everybody comes to me and says, Ross, where should I start in my journey of scripture? I always tell them, John, that's right. You gotta start with John. Because Genesis is confusing. And Genesis is hard. And how many of you have ever tried to read scripture and you stopped at Leviticus? Right? It's like, come on, like I'm not gonna keep going. This is nonsense. At least you'll get into John. At least you'll get a little further. At least you'll fall in love with Jesus, maybe. But a lot of us start the story of Scripture with Jesus, and a lot of us then miss out on the foundation of what Jesus is hoping to accomplish. But I I think we can only understand, if we start with Jesus, we can understand the story of our redemption, but we can't really understand the story of Jesus and really what he was trying to accomplish or hoping to accomplish, what he was going to accomplish if we don't read the entire scripture or at least know the entire story. And so we're going to pepper in some details about the Old Testament story, what Jesus is accomplishing as this series goes on. But as a foundation, I just want you to be aware of a few things regarding the Old Testament story. So here's a really, really brief overview of the Old Testament story that Jesus is accomplishing. In the beginning, all relationships, and these include God and humanity, human to human relationships, human to earth, human to creation, human to work, they're all broken because of sin. Every single relationship that we have, everything is broken because of sin. This is humanity's fault, by the way, okay? And so God promises that he will fix it, but he's going to do so through humanity. So God raises up the lineage of Abraham to write the world through God's faithfulness and our trust. You need to understand that from the very beginning, it was all about God's faithfulness and our trust to what God was accomplishing. The people of Abraham, the Israelites, were to mediate God's faithfulness then to the entire world. They were to be a light to the nations, that all the world would come to saving faith in God through the faithfulness of the Israelites. But they failed over and over and over and over and over again. That's essentially the story of the Old Testament. It's how the Israelites failed to live up to their vocation as light bearers of God. And so God then promised a Messiah, a faithful servant from the lineage of King David, that would accomplish for the Israelites what they could not accomplish for themselves. Is the story more complex than that? Of course, yes. But let's start there, okay? As you turn the pages of Malachi over into Matthew, the first gospel, the Old Testament into the New Testament, Matthew is asking this question, God, what are you doing to solve the problem of sin in the world? How does this child make sense of the ancient promises? That you have laid out for us. How is this child born to this family the solution to sin and sickness and the death the world is enshrouded in? How will this child bring justice to the nations? How will this child bring shalom and peace to the world? 
How is God flipping the world right side up through Jesus? These are the questions that that Matthew is interested in answering in the birth narrative. And he reaches back a thousand years into Israel's history to answer these questions. Now, we know the story because we just celebrated Christmas. How many of you read the Christmas story at some point over the last month, read a lot of us in some context? Maybe you, you heard it here in some context, one way or another, we've been focusing on the Christmas story. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. We know this part, right? City of David. He had to go there because the king wanted to take a census of the whole Roman world. While there, Mary gives birth, and there is these astronomers in the east who see some phenomenon in the stars, and they go trepsing across the, the desert to figure out why they saw in the stars, what they saw in the stars was was happening. And so they go to uh, Jerusalem, right, the, the capital city of Judea, where they believed the stars were pointing them. And of course, you'd go to Jerusalem because that's where a king would be born, right, because uh, it didn't make sense that a king would be born anywhere else. And so they go to Jerusalem. But Herod, the, the puppet king of, of Rome at the time, didn't know that there was a baby born, like a king being born. He gets irate from this. Uh, he asked the, the scribes where Jesus was to be born, where the Messiah was to be born. They, they look up the Old Testament prophet Micah, and they determine that it was to happen in Bethlehem. And so he sends an army to Bethlehem to kill all the babies two years and younger. We know the story, right? It's the Christmas story. We tell it every single year. But it was while these armies were coming to Bethlehem that Joseph receives in a dream from an angel that he should flee because these armies are coming to kill his child. And here's where we pick up the story. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. So he's in Egypt at this point, or as he was called uh, by Gabriel, first of all, to go to Egypt, to flee to Egypt, to get rid of the threat. And so after Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea he, in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in the town called Nazareth. And so Joseph receives word that Herod has died, so presumably he thinks it's safe to go back to Judea. The problem was, Caesar Augustus, the true authority of the, of the time, did not trust any three of the sons of, of Herod to, to rule the land. And so he divided the land up into three realms. Archelaus was just as ruthless as his father Herod was. He, he actually killed 3,000 of Judea's citizens just to show that he was the one in charge. Anybody who rose up a, a threat against him, he put to death immediately. And so Naturally, Joseph doesn't want to go to that town, right? And so he goes further north into Galilee where Antipas is ruling. He's far more tame, far more pleasant to um, be under the the rule of. And so he settled in Nazareth. And again, Matthew sees this action as an Old Testament prophetic fulfillment. So was fulfilled, Matthew told, told us, what was said through the prophets, that he should be called, that Jesus should be called a Nazarene. Now, Matthew, more than any other of the three gospel writers, wants to make sure that Jesus is, that we understand that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament prophecies. Matthew uses 42 Old Testament references in his gospel. Already in this, in this short story, in the first two chapters, he's used four references. And really, chapter one is just one long Old Testament reference um, referring to how Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises, the Old Testament hope. And so when he says that Jesus would be called a Nazarene, that he, he landed in Nazareth because he would be called a Nazarene, 
that, and, he's, and he calls it a prophetic illusion, that's not actually mentioned anywhere in the Old Testament. So a lot of people scratch their heads. Well, the, nowhere in the Old Testament does it say that he was going to be called a Nazarene. What is Matthew trying to, trying to get at here? Well, Nazir, Nazarene, literally means branch. Mind blown, right? I mean, come on, this is like, this is exciting stuff, right? If you were a Jew in the first century and you found out that he was going to be a Nazarene, that he was going to be a Nazir, you would get excited. This is exciting stuff. Branch, I mean, this is, this is mind blowing. Revelation here, friends. We don't get it. Okay, you don't get it. Okay, I get it. Thank you. Thank you. Remember what Matthew is trying to communicate, okay? That Jesus is the hope of the world to be restored and met with justice. He's going to flip the world right side up. So consider the promises that specifically refer to God bringing justice, God bringing his righteousness, God bringing his peace, his shalom to the earth, flipping the, right, the world right side up and how he was going to accomplish this. Let's begin with Isaiah 11. Here's what we're told, Isaiah 11, a reference to the Messiah. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, from his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. And justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover at the sea. This is 700 years prior to the birth of Jesus. And they're predicting that when the Messiah comes, when this branch comes on the scene, that justice and faithfulness and peace and shalom and God's righteous standing will cover the earth. This is exciting, right? People would get excited about this. This is everything their hearts had longed for and hoped for since they were infants. But it does it in there. Jeremiah predicted this. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his day, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteous Savior. And then in a section, a few chapters later, declaring healing and forgiveness, how it covers the whole land, the Lord says, In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called the Lord, our righteous Savior. And one last reference for you, though I could mention several others out of Zechariah. I'm going to bring my servant the branch, and I love this, and I will, through the branch, remove the sin of this land in a single day. Powerful. People who first would have read this would have been so excited. The branch has finally arrived. This Old Testament illusion, this thing we've been waiting for for our entire lives is finally on the scene. And they would have taken all of that from the fact that Jesus landed in Nazareth. Crazy. So who knows their Old Testament history? A few of you? Okay. In roughly 1000 BC, Jesse is out in the fields of Bethlehem with his seven sons. Sorry, this is going to be super small because it's essentially a timeline. So he's out with his seven sons. The youngest of his son is named 
David, thank you. Good. David becomes the second king of Israel, and God promises that the Davidic dynasty will be an everlasting reign because the Messiah is going to be always sitting upon the Davidic throne. He's going to be from the lineage of David. So David has Solomon, thank you, and the nation then splits into two after Solomon's death. The northern kingdom which is known as Israel, does not have a single faithful king. And so in 722, the Assyrians come and destroys the Israelites of the north. Um, They eventually become known as the Samaritans, and that's why there's so much animosity between the Samaritans and the Jewish people in the New Testament time. The southern kingdom is peppered with faithfulness of the kings, and so they at least last until Babylon destroys Jerusalem in 586, carries off most of the Jews into exile, They're in exile for 70 years, but 50 years after they're carted off, they come back to rebuild the temple and eventually the walls, but the Spirit of God did not return with them. And they knew this because they were still under the oppressive reign of all these other foreign governments. The mighty tree that symbolized the Davidic dynasty and the people of Israel had been cut down, and all that remained then in the first century was a stump. Jump 400 years to the birth of Jesus, and Matthew was saying that this sprout from this stump of Jesse, this branch that is sprouting from the stump of Jesse, David's father, Jesus is the branch of the Davidic dynasty. That's what Matthew wants to tell. That's what Matthew wants to say. Jesus is the branch that is sprouting from the stump of Jesse, the kingly line, the crown of David. And through this branch, justice and righteousness and faithfulness and peace, the reign of God through this dynasty of David is being established. God is going to return as the king in the form of the lineage of David. So in this child whom we celebrate at Christmas, God has answered the problem of the wayward world. That is what Matthew was so eager to communicate in this birth narrative. I mean, how many days do you wake up and you're like, I can't believe the world is the way it is. You read the news in the morning, you're like, what the heck is going on in the world? Yeah, there's some bright lights. Yeah, there's some glimmers of hope. But for the most part, we're kind of like, what the heck is going on? The world is so wayward and so backwards. And what Matthew was so excited to communicate is I am too, is that in this Jesus is God's branch. Doesn't seem all that exciting, but it is. In this, Jesus is God's branch, the one who would bring justice to the nations, the one who would establish righteousness, the one who would bring God's shalom, God's peace, God's healing to all of the world. And so who needs healing this morning? And who needs justice? Who needs peace? Whose world feels like it's flipped upside down? Yeah, who's hurting? Who's broken, right? I mean, even if your hand didn't go up, you're probably just too timid to raise your hand is really just the, what we're getting at. Right? All of us have experienced this. This is universal. This is all of our experience. We live among selfish people, and so selfish people are going to hurt one another. The world is broken. The world is upside down. Everybody needs rescuing. And the branch sprouting from the stump of Jesse will accomplish this, is what the prophets told us. So Matthew is very deliberate to make note that Jesus does in fact come from the line of David, the lineage of David, that he is in fact the branch that all of the prophets were pointing to. It's a key component to being the true branch. And so he wraps up his conclusion, Jesus being the branch, back to the beginning, coming from the line of David. Now, if you've ever read Matthew chapter 1, I commend you, because a lot of people get too bored with it and they just skip over to the fun part. 
It's a story of the lineage of Jesus. And who wants to just read a list of names? It's boring. But you need to know, like, well, give me an example, first of all, um, that this is so boring literature, right? This is the genealogy. This is how chapter 1 begins. Of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of God, the son of Abraham. Now, Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Thank you. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. And on and on and on and on it goes. And if you have ever read that and you have suffered through that, I commend you. Great job. You've done more than most. But to the Jew, they knew that genealogies meant something exciting was about to happen. To the Jew, they would have been like, a, a lineage? A genealogy? What? Like, this is exciting. A lineage. This is exciting. Right? They told lineage and family tree stories as launch pads to build anticipation for the big event. And so, like, lineages, they were like, they were like the drum rolls, right? These were like the fireworks before the finale. The opening band that's starting for the band you actually want to see, right? These were the trumpet blasts introducing that arrival of the royalty. These were exciting. They would have gotten the Jewish people excited. Many people have pointed out that there are a ton of oddities in this. Genealogy in Matthew and Jesus' day and age, for one, it includes four women. They never would have included women in, in normal genealogies in his day. Not to be offensive, women, they just didn't care. Women had no role. Women were property. They didn't have any role or significance in the storyline, and so they didn't include them in the genealogies. But not only are these four individual women mentioned, they were not the type of women you would expect to find trumpeted about. If if anything, you would try to hide their stories because you'd be embarrassed of their part of the story. Tamar, in verse 3, disguised herself as a prostitute so that she could sleep sleep with her stepfather. Not the kind of person you want in your lineage, you know, like... Let's cut that page out of the family tree, okay? Rahab, in verse 5, was a non-Jewish prostitute that married a Jew, again. Ruth, also in verse 5, was a Gentile, a non-Jew, and that alone was enough to, to you know, cause some, some eyebrows to raise. Bathsheba, in verse 6, was the adulterous wife of Uriah who slept with David at his demand, but was the mother of Solomon. And so, like, he chose these four women to kind of shake things up a bit and to kind of put a stain, if you will, on the, on the lineage. One of the reasons Matthew includes them is to illustrate this very important fact, that Jesus is for everybody. I don't care what you've done. I don't care who you are. I don't care what, what role you've played in the chaos that the world is experiencing. God is for you. Jesus is for you. Man and woman, Jew and Gentile, saint and sinner. Jesus comes from them all. And Jesus is for them all, very much including you. But most importantly, Matthew is structuring his genealogy in such a way as to scream, David! He just wants people to know that this is coming from the lineage of David. He says there were 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. Now, historically, this isn't true. There were way more than 14 generations in all of these categories, but he's being deliberate in structuring it this way. Numbers were very significant in the biblical language, Hebrew and Greek, Uh, every Letter in both of those languages had a number um, attached to it, and so they could figure out their grammatria by uh, the, the, the number that was associated with your name by adding up the, the numbers that are associated with your name. Highly influential, often political figures in their day were given numbers which ascribed to the letters of their name. So everybody knew the, the old kings and probably the current kings of their day by the number that was associated with them. And so many people in the first century knew their former kings, very much including David. Anybody want to guess? Oh, there it is. David, okay? 
DVD equals 14 in the Greek language. And so everyone is just screaming. Matthew is screaming, this is David, this is David, this is David. Jesus, the one to be born, king of the Jews, he is fulfilling the long-awaited prophecy, everything that we've ever wanted and dreamed about this Messiah coming to bring justice and righteousness and faithfulness and peace to the world. He is doing it through this baby, Jesus. That is what Matthew was trying to communicate through this story. He's screaming, David, at the top of his lungs, David, this is the branch, the stump of Jesse. This is it. Jesus, born into this manger in this time in history, God is doing this for the people through this baby. You know, we read it as a, as a Christmas story. Something we, we probably get a little bored with because we do it year after year after year. And the people who would first have heard this would have been so excited because this is what they had been longing for and waiting for their entire life. That a branch, that a Messiah would be born in the lineage of David to bring justice to the world and healing to the world and peace to households. This was it. I hope it gets you excited as it does me. I'm going to put the band forward. We're going to reflect on this as we sing one final song together. Everybody knows the world is broken. We've already all raised our hands. We've already admitted that. We've already know. Um, I don't know all of your stories, but I can bet that every single one of us, if we took some time, knows that we're broken, that we're messed up. We have been selfish towards our spouse, towards our kids, towards our, towards our neighbors. We are broken people. We don't treat the earth the way that we should. You know, we, we abuse the earth instead of care for it as we were called to in the beginning. Even creatures, like we, we eat creatures, we, we mutilate them for their flesh, their clothing, right, to make hats and gloves out of Maybe not anymore because, you know, they get protested against, but... We, we cage creatures and lock them away in zoos. Like we don't treat, we don't treat creatures. Our relationship to creatures is broken. Our relationship to the world is broken. Our relationship to one another is broken. Certainly our relationship with God is broken. Everybody knows this. It manifests its way itself in a million different ways, a different, million different scenarios. We all know this. Everybody experiences this. And everyone, everywhere is mourning because of this. And coping through it. And here's my hope for 2023. Here's what I hope for this body. That this would be the year that we stop beating our hearts and our minds and our souls against tired old coping mechanisms and worn out religion. But that we would recognize in Jesus that God came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. God came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. God has made a way for our healing, for justice, in a world that doesn't seem to know justice. Righteousness in a world that is sideways. Peace in households that are at war against each other. In minds that are at war with itself. In schools. God has come to set the world back upright. For forgiveness to set us free. And yet, how often times, knowing this, knowing that God has gone to an incredible length, an an unimaginable length to do this for us, how many times do we still attach our hope to coping mechanisms? To the bottle, to the drug, to the, I mean, therapist is good, to the medication, all those things, like, those aren't bad, but like, they're insufficient if you don't have Jesus at the center of it all. How many times do we attach it to worn out religion? We just hope that, you know, I'm going to do more, I'm going to do more, I'm going to do more. Maybe this will, you know, finally make God like me. 
Maybe you'll finally start treating me better. It's the understanding mentality of a lot of people. Our response to God from day one when we first initiated the promise of his redemption and salvation to Adam and Eve in the garden was to trust in his faithfulness. That is what God wanted us from day one. I will do the work, God says. I will do the work. I will be the healer. I will be the peace giver. I will be the bearer of righteousness and faithfulness and justice. I will do the work. Will you trust me to do the work? I will be faithful to do what I have called. Will you trust? Will you trust? And so my hope for this body in 2023 is that we would surrender more. That every day we would look at how we're coping, how we're turning to religion to fix our problems and say, you know what, God, I'm not going to do that today. I'm rather going to confess my own sinfulness, how I participate in the chaos and the brokenness of the world. I'm going to confess my own problems. I'm going to look first at the plank in my eye rather than looking at the speck in the world. I'm going to, I'm going to confess. That's the first thing I'm going to do. I'm going to confess. I'm going to admit that I have rejected God, that I've abandoned God. That's where I'm going to start. And then I'm going to lay down all those attempts at trying to fix myself. And I'm not going to keep going back to that dirty well. I'm going to lay down my coping mechanisms. I'm going to lay down my religion. I'm going to trust in what God has done for me. I'm going to surrender more, surrender more, surrender more, that there would be more of Jesus, less of me. And that's where healing begins. And that's where justice is discovered. And that's where mercy is found. That's where forgiveness is found. That's where righteousness is found. That's where peace will begin to be established within you and begin to bleed out then on your household. You can't control everybody around you, but you can only control yourself and how you surrender to what God is doing in you. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for who you are and for what you've done in me. How you have met me in my greatest time of need how you saw the world was broken and upside down, lacking justice, fighting each other, and the world is unfair and off balance, Father. You came into the mess that we have created, and through your Son, Jesus Christ, you have fixed it. And yet we continue to attach ourselves to things that are broken and hoping to, to discover meaning in it all. May we be a people, Father, who are surrendered more and more and more to lay down more of our attempts at fixing it, Father, and attach our hope and our life more to you, Father, the branch from the stump of Jesse, the one who has come to fix the world, the Davidic king, Father. You are reigning. It is your kingdom that is established. It is your kingdom. You are the king, Father. May we, may we align our hearts and our wills and our allegiance, Father, to you, the rightful king. Father, then may we experience the justice and the righteousness, the faithfulness, the peace, the healing, the forgiveness that you have brought with your son Jesus into this world. And we do pray this in his name. Amen. We're going to sing one final song to conclude our time together this morning. Uh, a declaration that tells a story of, of God's redemption as well. But I hope that we, the people who have experienced this, might begin to be a light or continue to be a light to the darkness. We'll talk more about that as the series goes on as well. Let the song be a prayer for you this morning.